That commercial actually came out in the mid-90s. And the main byline during that Nissan campaign was, life is a journey, enjoy the ride. And it's true, life is a journey, and all of us want to enjoy the ride. But the problem is that the message of culture has been and is that the journey is more important than the destination. So as long as you're having a good time on the journey, it's, you know, it doesn't really matter where you're headed. And every, every one of us, me included, we have been in stages in our life, especially as a teenagers, maybe going into our early 20s, where we could have cared less about the destination because we were pretty much focused on enjoying the ride. Because as humans, our natural inclination is to invest a lot of time and energy and money into enjoying the ride and to experience pleasure and avoid inconvenience and pain and discomfort as much as possible. And I've looked so forward to this series because over the next few weeks, we're going to dig into this rich historical text from the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. What we're going to talk about is the journey and the destination that we're headed towards in this life. Because life and relationships are complicated, and we can get so consumed by the here and now and where we are in the journey that we can forget to pay attention to where is my life going? Where do I want to end up? In the latter years of my life, when my productive career years are over and I'm looking back, what do I want to look back on? And it's so important to pause and to clarify that as early in life as possible. And this deep dive into Nehemiah is just going to be so helpful to all of us because life is complicated and we're constantly bombarded with distractions, right? And before you know it, your teens are over and you can never get those back. Your 20s are over. You can never get those back. There are no do-overs. Your 30s, your 40s, and it's like each passing decade, it's like it begins to pick up speed, like somebody's pushing down on the accelerator, and before you know it, once you hit 50, you're looking back going, where did the time go? What happened? And looking in the mirror, like, I'm, I'd like I, I, I feel like an 18-year-old, but I do not appear to be an 18-year-old anymore, and you feel that way. So we're going to take a few weeks, and we're going to focus on something that is very important for every single one of us. And we're going to discuss the journey and learn about this issue of destination and allowing God to help you shape a picture of a preferred future and a clear vision for your life so that by having a clear guiding vision for your life as a man, as a woman, as a single, as a student, as a husband, as a parent, as a professional, that you can get to the end of your life and look back and go, I did it. I did it. I was successful. I counted I mattered. I feel good about my life. Because if you don't have a guiding vision for for your life, when you get to the end of your life, which may be sooner than you expect, you will look back with wonder and regret. Like, I wonder what would have happened if only I would have done this or done that, or I wish I would have, if only I could do it all over again. And I know this is true because I've had enough conversations with people that are my age or older who lacked a greater guiding vision for their life, and these are the kinds of things that they say, and they have regrets. And the value of what we're going to discover from Nehemiah is that a vision for your life, a guiding vision adds passion to your life, because it brings an emotional element to your life when you have a clear picture of where you're going and where you're headed, and it's something that's deeply meaningful 
to you. It just fuel injects your soul with a passion and emotion for life. It also adds a greater sense of motivation, an incredible sense of motivation, because suddenly the seemingly mundane things in life, the things that in and of themselves have very little meaning and very little purpose, when you have a God-given vision, all these little things suddenly have meaning in your life. It's like the man who walked up to three bricklayers on a scaffolding, and he, he asked each one, what are you doing? And the first one said, that I'm laying bricks to feed my family. And the second one said, I'm building a wall. But the third said, I am building a great cathedral. Because the mundane things of life matter when you have a clear picture of where you're headed. Another thing it does is it just gives you direction for your life because when you have a clear guiding vision for your life and a vision of your future and where you want to end up, it's easier to make decisions because anything that pushes you towards that vision is likely a yes, and anything that pushes you away is likely a no. And you become far more decisive in your life when you have a vision for your life. And another thing is it gives you great confidence because you sense in your gut, if I don't accomplish what I feel God has accomplished me to do, something's not going to get done. And you gain a sense of purpose in your soul about your life, and it's going to give you far more confidence because you can see that you and your life, it truly matters in this life. Because most of you know that you matter to God, but we more than just want to matter to God, right? I mean, we want to matter in this world, in this life. And for those of you who are still unsure about God, you just need to know that the next few weeks are going to be, have incredible relevance to you as well. Because through this series, among other things, we're going to explain how to avoid this awful trap that many fall into, men especially, of getting to the end of our lives and looking back and realizing for the, that for the most part, we spent the majority of our time and energy to try and gather and secure rectangular pieces of green paper with pictures of dead presidents on them. Because without an element of the divine, let's just be honest, life is basically, it boils down to this. Grow up, work hard, possibly raise children, grow old, and then you're out. And then another generation works hard, raises children, grows old, and then they're out. It's just like wash, rinse, and repeat. And three generations, four at the most, nobody's even going to remember your name. I mean, you realize that, right? Like you came here to feel really uplifted this morning. Like when was the last time that you really thought about your great-great-grandparents? And most of us, we can't even name all the names of our great-grandparents. So what an awful thing to get to the end of your life and go, what was it all for? What, what did it mean? Like, what, what was I here for? What was the point? What did I really accomplish? And it doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to be your experience. Because the great news is that your Heavenly Father, your Creator, your God, has a personal, specific vision for your life. No matter what your background, your history, your socioeconomic status, he's got a purpose for your life. And in this passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to get the formula for how to discover a God-given guiding vision for your life. So if you have a Bible or the Bible, a Bible app, you want to go to the book of Nehemiah chapter 1, I want to give you a little context because it's what sets this story up to be an incredible learning opportunity. Nehemiah is the last historical book of the Old Testament. After Nehemiah, we don't hear anything for 400 years and then Christ comes. So this book takes place in 445 B.C., 445 years before Jesus. But to understand the significance of the story, I actually have to take you back about 140 years before that. 140 years before that, Israel had turned their back on God. 
God sent prophet after prophet saying, listen, if you, if, if, if you don't shape up, I'm going to allow people to come in and allow them to stomp all over you, and you're going to face the, con- the, the consequences of your rebellion and your evil ways. And the people of Israel said, whatever. I mean, we're not afraid. We're Israel. Who's going to mess with us? And so they turned their back on God, and God said, all right, I warned you. And it lets the Babylonians come in and right into southern Israel, and the Babylonians just wreak havoc. They tear down Jerusalem. They tear down the temple. They end all religious worship. They kill most of the leaders, and they drag off some of the young, best leaders and some of the most artistic, gifted, talented people off to Babylon. That's where the story of Daniel takes place, for example. And so Israel's a mess. It almost doesn't exist as a nation anymore. And after Babylon did its worst, all these smaller surrounding nations, they basically just move in, they begin to pillage the land, they take anything of any value. Now God had said through the prophets before all this that after 70 years that the next generation of Jews are going to come to their senses and go, we messed up big time and they will repent and I'm going to bring them back to the nation. I'm going to reestablish them as a nation, because eventually the Messiah will come to the land of Israel and specifically to the city of Jerusalem. So about 70 years go by, and God keeps his promises. And the Persian king, who had defeated the Babylonian king, he's now in power. He decides, listen, we don't need to have all these Jews around here. Let's send them home. So God uses this pagan king to send the Jews back to Israel, but they don't do a very good job. They get there, and they sort of build the temple back, but it's nothing like the old temple. And for about 90 years, all of these Jews just kind of trickle back out of Persia into Israel. But there's no organization. There's no government. There's no real leadership. And every once in a while, there's a prophet, but they just can't seem to get their act together. And the nations around Israel, they just continue to pillage the land and steal their crops and steal their gold and anything of value, and it's just a mess. And that's where the story begins. So Nehemiah, he's in the Persian capital, he's in the house of the king, he's born in captivity, he's never even been to his homeland. And the story begins, Nehemiah 1, chapter 1, verse 1. This is Nehemiah speaking. In the month of Kislev of the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, these people, this group that's back in Judea and southern Israel, that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me that those who survive the exile, they're back in the province. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned, I fasted, I prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands and decrees and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to this place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So that was God's promise. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence 
of this man. And this man referred to the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world at that time. Now, there are are three things from this chapter that set us up to talk about realizing a God-given compelling vision for your life. The first is that Nehemiah knew what God was up to in history. Nehemiah knew that the Israelites had messed up a long time ago. God did exactly what he said he would do, what he promised to do. If you turn your back on me, you'll get squashed. They turned their back on him, they got squashed. He also knew that God had said, if you repent and turn back to me, I will reestablish the land. He knew the heart of God, and he knew that this process had begun, but he also knew that God was grieved over the fact that the Israelites were in such distress. The second thing that jumps out is, and this was huge, Nehemiah was concerned with the things that God was concerned with. The walls, when he heard things were in disarray, the walls are down, the gates are burned, there's no leadership. He was distressed. He wept. He cared like God cared. He cared at the level of his emotions. And we're told that he fasted and prayed for days. And to be clear, he likely didn't fast because he's so disciplined. This was the kind of fast where he was just so upset and nauseous about what was going on. He just wasn't interested in food. He was so distraught by the same things that made God distraught. And the third thing, and this is so important, and the tension of wrestling between what was and what could be and should be, a vision was born in the heart of Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew what was the state and the situation for Israel and what could and should be. And within him, a vision was born, and it was a vision that was from God, and it paved the way for Jerusalem, not just for Jerusalem to be reestablished as the capital city of Israel, but to reestablish the city for the Messiah to come 400 and some years later. Now, all of this, the whole book of Nehemiah, it's an incredible story. But the legitimate question is, what does this have to do with any, any of us? And the answer is everything, if you're a Christian. Because if you're a Christian... We are like Nehemiah in that we know what God is up to in history. There's no question about it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the letters leading up to the book of Revelation has made it very clear that at this point in history, God's main concern is people coming to know and trust him as their heavenly father through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing to God right now. That's what God is up to in human history. Do you know what prayer God answers every single time? Do you know what that is? It's, God, I'm a sinner. I'm repenting. I'm turning from my sin. I'm turning to you. I believe that you sent your son to die for me. I need your help. God answers that prayer 100% of the time. God never says no to someone who calls out on his mercy and his grace because that is his primary concern. And like Nehemiah, we know what God is up to in history. Luke records Jesus saying, I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You know what that means? It means if all of us, like really righteous people, we've gotten a big huddle, 99 of us, and we just, we just spend our whole lives like listening to Christian music and having Christian friends and reading Christian books and Christian blogs and Christian, 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 but then there's this one guy, there's this one gal, there's this one student or single adult or senior adult who's over here kind of doing a 180 away from their old way of life and turning towards God. God is way more excited about that 
than what's going on up in here. Because God is into people recognizing, I need to change and I need God. He's into Christians who recognize their need to change and are growing and being discipled and renewed by the transforming of their mind. He's into skeptics, who people who didn't believe, coming to realize, oh my gosh, there is a God. There really is a God who really cares for me, who really has a plan for my life. God, I want you to be in the driver's seat of my life. I surrender to you. I trust in you and what you've done for me through my resurrected Savior. That is God's focal point in history. That's what he's up to. So the core convicting question for any of us who would say, I'm a Jesus follower, I'm a Christian, is am I as concerned with what God is up to as God is? Because like Nehemiah, we know the big picture of what God is up to and what concerns him. Scripture tells us, Jesus tells us, but the question is, are we like Nehemiah, where at a heart and a soul and emotional level, we are concerned about the things that concern our almighty God. Because if you say you're a Christian, the question is, are you truly overwhelmed by the things that overwhelm God? Are you genuinely at a heart level concerned with the things that concern God? Or do we have to look in the mirror and say, you know, no, are we just like most, primarily investing the majority of our time, energy, and money to experience maximum pleasure and avoid as much inconvenience, pain, and discomfort as possible? I want to ask that again. Are we genuinely, at a heart level, concerned with the things that concern God? Or are we just like most other people, investing primarily the majority of our time, energy, and money to experience maximum pleasure and avoid as much inconvenience, pain, and discomfort in this life as possible? Because, again, this all comes naturally for all of us, me included, that's normal. That's average. But if you're a Christian, we are not called to be normal or average. We are called to be something greater and to be concerned about the things that concern God, to be caught up in the tension of look how my neighbor is experiencing life versus how they could be experiencing life. Considering all the children in the adjacent rooms that are moving towards adolescence, and how the teenage years are as opposed to how they could be for them. Or as you think about the people at your jobs, at your work, how they are versus how they could be, how life is versus how it could be. It's that person on the outside who is outside the circle. God is saying, Chad, while I love the 99, are you concerned? And see, this is very convicting for me. You know, I, I regularly sense God prompting me. Chad, are you really concerned at, emotional, at an emotional level with what concerns me? Because, Chad, while I love the 99, obviously I do. They obviously matters to me. matter to me. What concerns me, what I feel anxious about, is not all you 99 righteous folks who are in. It's that person who is outside the circle. It's that person who's outside the circle. Maybe they used to be in the circle, but they drifted away about the age of 17 or 18 or 19, or who got driven away by Christians behaving badly. It's a person who's outside the circle. They don't even know there is a circle. They're just, they're just out. They don't know me. Or maybe it's a person, they prayed a prayer at some point to become a Christian, but no one discipled them. No one mentored them, and now they're just out there, and they've got 
maybe one foot out the door because they're trying to figure, out, figure it out all on their own and it's just, it's just not working out for them. It's that person who has my attention. So Chad, are you concerned about them? And when God's concern becomes our concern, you don't have to pray for a vision or direction for your life because there will be be birthed in you a vision that grips your soul that you cannot get away from. And if there's not a church program, you're not going to wait for a church program. You're just going to go after it. And it will be that thing that you look back on your life when you evaluate your life and you say, my life counted because of that right there. Because of the vision that God gave me, because I became consumed and concerned about the things and the people that consume the heart and concern the heart of God. And so if you're a Christian, let me let you in on some good news, bad news. See, when you became a Christian, when I became a Christian, when we did, we, we surrendered our right to dream dreams and establish goals and visions for our lives to the exclusion of Christ's command to make disciples, students, followers of all nations, the Apostle Paul, he said it this way, you're, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. See, you and I, we buy things that we don't need. They show, Amazon shows on our porch all the time. God doesn't. And he paid a high, high price for you and for me because you're important. But the end result is you belong to him. And see, my tendency is to live my life like it belongs to me. Your tendency is to live your life like it belongs to you. But again, if you're a Christian, God's going, wait, hold on. Like, you were bought with a high, high price, and it's okay. It's okay to set goals and dream dreams, but in the midst of that, of that, that you ask God, God, in the midst of my career, in the midst of my family and my plans and the myriad of all the stuff that's going on in my life, birth in me a guiding vision for what you want to do in me and through me into the lives of other people. And here's why we need to do that. If we don't make that a priority, we will just end up using our faith and our Christianity as just one more way to experience maximum pleasure and avoid as much inconvenience, pain, and discomfort as possible in this life because we are all selfish by nature. We just are. And if we refuse to embrace a God-given, God-defined guiding vision for our lives, we just end up working to wring all the goodness of Christianity out for ourselves. It's like you've heard around here, following Jesus will make your life better and make you better at life. And that's true, but that's not all that's true. Because a crucial part of following Jesus involves embracing something bigger, something that will cost us. Which is why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or later in Luke, Jesus is recorded as saying, whoever does not bear his or her own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. But see, the problem is, that sounds uncomfortable. That sounds really inconvenient. 
I just prefer to know that I'm not going to hell, to be guaranteed heaven when I die. And in the meantime, I want to know all the dating and marriage principles, all the financial principles, the friendship and relationship principles, and for my life to be better and for me to be better at life. And I just want to get everything out of this that I can for me. But I don't really have a whole lot of time to invest in someone else. And you know what happens when we decide to live that way? God reserves his vision for someone else. And you and I will get to the end of our lives with all the 99 righteous and like, weren't we good? And see how right we believed and see how well we behaved most of the time. And God's going, what? Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I, I was focused over there on the one who was on the outside, who you ignored who you avoided, who you didn't go after because it would be uncomfortable or inconvenient. Do you know what we need to make a habit of as a church and individually, for those of us that would say we're a Christian? It's to begin praying daily. God caused me to be as concerned as you are about the things that concern you. We need to begin to pray that God would wreck our hearts in such a way that we won't be able to do anything less than prioritize our lives around what wrecks the heart of God and around the values and principles of his word and the building of the ecclesia, the church, that we would truly reprioritize our lives and our schedules and our calendars and our bank accounts and our families around his deal rather than ours. And we need to pray, God, as you wreck my heart with what wrecks yours, give me a vision for what you would have me do about it. You know what else we need to pray? We need to pray, God, cause me to see the people around me the way you see them. Do you know why we need to pray this? Because, and why we need God to do this for us? Because if we don't, and if he doesn't, the people around us will become one of two things a means to an end, or an inconvenience. We size people up. Well, is there something about a relationship with you that can help me get something that I want? Because if not, it's in the way. It's kind of like, I was in Dylan's before Christmas, which I don't ever recommend. But I, I, you know, I scouted out the lines, which one do I think is going to get me out the fastest, right? But of course, the one I get into, the person right ahead of me, they're getting rung up. Uh, in this line, and they had a coupon issue, and everything comes to the halt, uh, halt in, that, in, in, in that line while they paid Shirley to come to register nine, and I was like, oh, seriously, and it's like, it was probably like five minutes, felt like an hour, because I'm a big baby, it's like, is Shirley in the bathroom, is Shirley on break, will somebody please go find Shirley, uh, we're in, like, is it a coupon for a dollar off, like, I think I might have a dollar, and we can just get this thing going, like, just let's get out of here, because you see, what mattered to me was getting in and out as quickly as possible, what mattered to me was getting home so I could relax, and in that moment, Shirley, wherever she was, and this customer mattered to me to the extent that they were hindering that plan, I don't know, didn't know where they were spiritually. For all I knew, maybe they served the ministry with their church. Maybe they were on their way to hell. I didn't know. It didn't matter to me because I had a plan and they were messing with my plan in that moment. It's like in that moment, God, as he so often will do, whispers in my ear, Chad, seriously? They mattered to me. 
why don't they matter to you? And I was so convicted and just embarrassed by my internal thoughts and attitudes because you and I have never come face to face with anyone who didn't matter to God. People, all people, matter to God. And in fact, it's a hard truth, but it could be said that the measure of your spirituality and mine is the degree to which what concerns God concerns you. And we might be mega righteous, but if it doesn't somehow break our heart that people are going to die separated from God for eternity, it means we do not see people the way God sees them. If it doesn't break our heart, there are people who are living under oppression and injustice and have no voice, that there are families and marriages crumbling down all around us, that there are people and students who are believers, but they have no one mentoring and guiding them, and they're about to step out. If it doesn't break our heart that there are people who want to fit in and belong and find community and find relationship, and they're on the outside looking in, but nobody's looking out towards them, investing in them and inviting them into relationship. If it doesn't break our heart that there are children in desperate need of more adults to come alongside them as they head towards adolescence and their parents and pour into them the life-giving hope and relationship of following Jesus, if that doesn't bother us and break our hearts, we need to repent. You know, we've got a lot of great things going on in this little growing church we call New Life. But God is not going to show up in this church if we allow it to become a bunch of Christians who are primarily concerned about having our Christianity make our lives better and make us better at life. God's not going to show up if we allow our church to become full of a bunch of Christians who are focused on getting all we can to squeeze out of our Christianity and our faith for our benefit and our deal. God's going to be like, well, have a nice time with that, but I'm into something bigger. So as we start this series, God's big question for those of us who are God followers is, are you concerned with what concerns me? And it begins with daily praying, sincerely, God, break my heart over what breaks yours. God, I want to be burdened and bothered by what burdens and bothers you. And I'm telling you, if God does that in your life, and if you begin asking him that, I am convinced he will. So buckle up. There will be birthed in you a God-given vision and calling for your life that you can't get away from. More than 70 years ago, a man named Everett Swanson, he flew from Chicago to South Korea to minister to uh, troops, American troops fighting the Korean War, and during his time there, he was increasingly troubled by the sight of hundreds of war orphans that were lining the streets, abandoned by society. And one morning, he saw local street workers scooping up piles of rags and tossing them onto the back of a, tr a truck, but he moved in closer for a closer look, and he was horrified to see that the piles were not rags, but the frozen bodies of orphans who had died on the streets overnight. And he couldn't turn his back on these unwanted children. And he vowed to find a way to help them. And he began an organization that is now known as Compassion International. 
It provides biblical lessons, education, food, shelter, clothing, medical aid on a regular basis. Sean and I have sponsored a compassion child for years now. And today, because of one man just willing to embrace a God-given vision that wrecked him, more than 2.2 million children worldwide today are receiving care through compassion in more than 8,000 frontline churches, breaking the generational cycle of poverty through a long-term whole-child approach. Globally and locally in this city, I could give you example after example, story after story of men, women, young people who are a lot like us, who they have discovered and surrendered to the love of a Heavenly Father, and they're trying to prioritize their lives around the values and principles of Scripture, but they're unlike some of us in that they've gone a third step, that they decided to join arms with their Heavenly Father and to do something about what is versus what could be and should be. And my prayer as we move forward as a church into this new year, my prayer is that God would raise up in our small congregation the majority of men and women and young people who would begin to decide at the core of their soul, God, I want to care about what you care about and that you would begin to care about what God cares about, to become genuinely burdened for what and who he's burdened for and be gripped by a picture of what could be versus should be, what is versus what could be in the lives and the eternities of others. And it may be a vision that impacts a few It may be a vision that impacts thousands, but you will never know until you step in that direction. Aristotle once said, the soul never thinks without a picture. Do you have a picture? And I don't mean goals in life and career and family. Those are good things. But in the realm of the spiritual, in the realm of God's kingdom, on earth, Do you have a picture of what God may want to do in and through your life? And if not, then the next few weeks, they're going to be huge for you and anyone that you might bring. And in the process, I just want to ask you to begin praying consistently that God would place deep in you concern with what and who concerns him. And as you wrestle with that tension between what is versus what could be, He will birth in you a guiding vision for your life and that will change your life because the one thing that we know for sure is what God is up to in history. The question is simply, how do you fit in? And you're going to find out. I'm going to invite the ladies back up and let me pray for us. Father, I I pray for all of us in this room, those who are listening online, those that are going to be joining us for the rest of the series, God, that that you would do something unmistakable in each one of us. Again, for those of us, Father, we believe in you, we believe in your Son. We don't want a boring faith. We don't want to live where it just seems like, well, we've checked a box, Father. We, we want more. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us as we go through this, that you would give even greater clarity and that you truly would cause every one of us to be wrecked and deeply concerned about the things that concern you and that, Father, that you would in each one of us give clarity as to what it is 
that you would have us do about it. I'm so grateful that you have given us that opportunity that in this life, as we wait for the day to come, where pain and sorrow and grief and all these things will eventually come to an end, that in the meantime, you've given us a chance that we can make a difference in this life that will outlive our name and our life on this earth and ripple into the next generation and future generations. So I pray, God, that you would cause that to happen today and over the next few weeks. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.